Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is life and business coach, Mandy Kubicek. Mandy Kubicek is a life and business coach based in Omaha, Nebraska. Before training with Martha Beck, also known as Oprah's life coach, Mandy spent 12 years building software products at companies like Boeing and Flywheel. She has an MBA from Washington University in St. Louis, a BS from the Rakes School at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and is a lifelong learner. Known for her giant salads and insightful questions, Mandy helps burned-out achievers build energizing work lives. Mandy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. So we were chatting off-air just a little bit about the, the many possible ways that people perceive coaching. So why don't we just start with talking about what is coaching? Yeah, it seems like such a simple question. Um, I'm still kind of working out how I concisely describe what coaching is. So my briefest description of what I do is I expand awareness. You know, it's really loosey-goosey, but that's really the heart of what life coaching is. And the um, comparison that I that really resonates with me is personal trainers or athletic coaches. So it makes perfect sense. We understand that we invest in those people to help us be at our best physically and to reach these new levels. Life coaching is that just for the other aspects of our life, emotional, mental, fitness. I think we do the same thing. We invest sometimes in our spiritual, religious side. Um, so there's just this gap with mindset and emotions that coaching is just beginning to be big. I love that phrase, expand awareness, because immediately it amplifies in my thinking, perhaps, uh, dare I say, a somewhat more spiritual approach to how we think about our lives more holistically and larger than we are at present. Hmm. I could see that. How is it different from, on the one hand, say, your best friend or mentorship, and on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps some, perhaps some sort of um, therapeutic counseling. Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty intuitive to most people once you think about it, how it's so different from your best friend or your spouse, because that's where we start usually, right? Like I've spent many nights complaining to my husband and those relationships are different. There's biases. People either want to join in on your story and complain with you and be like, yeah, your boss totally sucks. It's all his fault. Or on the other end, they want to fix your problem and they want to give you all these solutions. So that's one thing that my clients love from the very beginning. It's just immediately apparent that this is different. This is a space where there isn't any of that bias, none of that judgment. It's just a calm, loving space for you to explore all that stuff that isn't easy to explore in other relationships. So we get pretty deep really fast, like not to be intimidating, but many of my clients cry at some point early on in the sessions because I think there just isn't that space day to day for people to really explore deep emotions and thoughts that are troubling. And sometimes just the speaking in a safe space is enough for you to move past some of those things. And not always, some of these are really deep rooted and there's more there, but, um, yeah, that is just unfortunately rare in our culture, I think. What does that say about modern society that if you expand out 
by the number of coaches, the number of people that are encountering coaching sessions where they feel emotionally distraught in some way before they move through the process and that this is a necessary part of society. I just wonder if you ever reflect on what is this saying about our modern world? Boy, I don't know that I reflect too much on that. I think it just shows that we're human. The biggest thing I see over and over again is whether it's through my coaching of clients or through my own personal work is that we are all the same. Yes, there are differences in both in superficial ways and in our experiences and all of that. But like at the heart of it, we have very similar fears and worries and we want very similar things. We want to be loved. We want to belong. Um, yeah. And that's one of my favorite things to continually experience because I, I talk a lot about um, when you're designing your work life to really focus on the feelings you want to feel and connected is one of those for me. Like I want all of my work to make me feel connected. And that's even when, if I'm having coffee with you, Stuart, that's what I'm getting out of it. It's like that mirror of seeing, oh yeah, we're in this together and things are hard, but wow, even with completely different experiences, we've had some of the same doubts and worries and fears and, and ideas of how to solve it. I really love that idea of reframing how we engage with the world, whether it's professionally in our workplace or perhaps at a more personal or social level. Instead of thinking about it in terms of what can I do, or what am I qualified to do, or what is expected of me, and what are my strengths, it's framing it instead, how do I want to feel about doing whatever it is that I'm doing? Yes, how do I want to be? How do I want to feel? And the, the most powerful part about it is that's within our power, right? So many times I'm helping people strategize how they're going to have a difficult conversation or, you know, they're going to go give a workshop and how that's, how is that going to be seen? They're going for an interview, whatever it is. And when we go in with goals about the result and what we're going to do and what the other person is going to do, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. But if you can go in saying, all right, this is how I want to be. I want to be present and curious. I want to listen. That we can do, no matter what the world does. We've talked about what I think are some fairly broad and abstract concepts in a way about what coaching is, how it can help people. But maybe we should narrow that down a little bit and, and make it a little bit more accessible and concrete. So beyond wanting to feel love and belonging, a sense of purpose, which are supremely valuable, are there other reasons why people feel they need coaching? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And usually consciously, it's not those things. Um, people go to coaching for all kinds of reasons. I was talking with a coach this morning. And it was fun because we realized we do kind of the same thing. We get the same results for people, but her people come to her because they've been trying to get what they want through food. So, so they're coming wanting to lose weight and she helps them lose weight and then also have a really joyful life. My people come to me because they've been going to work and they've been overworking and it's kind of the same thing. They, they work through that issue and then also have this deep sense of joy. Broadly, I think of kind of two rough areas, times in, in your life transitions that you might go to a coach. And the way I think about it is in terms of what Martha Beck calls the squares of change. So. We go through change in our adult life all the time. Sometimes it's big, you know, it's, it's getting marriage it's, or getting married, I mean, building a family, changing careers, or it's very small things. Regardless, it generally follows these four squares. 
And in the beginning two squares, you're not sure what's going on. Everything feels like a mess, feels very unclear. You might be starting to dream about what you want, but generally it's just like really uncomfortable. And then as you move along towards like the third square, you know what you want and you're taking real action and now it's like way harder than you thought it would be. So for an ex for example, as an entrepreneur, I feel like I live in that square three where I'm sort of intentionally always stepping out of my comfort zone, doing uncomfortable things, not really sure what's going to happen. And then square four is, you know, I'm happy, I'm, I'm stable, I'm staying where I'm at. So people go to coaching in that square one, two time, especially a lot of my clients come from that where they're, they don't, they aren't sure what they want. They want more meaning in their career, but they're, they're frustrated because they don't have this clear vision of what that even looks like. And they don't know how to move forward. They might have a sense. I was just talking with someone earlier this week. It's like she had a sense that she was getting in her own way, that every time she tried to do something for herself, her guilt about not doing stuff for her family got in her way. But there's, there's just a lot of a lack of clarity. So I, I just want to explain that because it's so normal. And yeah, those are kind of the two times that life coaching can be huge which is also most of our life, depending on our life situation. I know for me, like, I'm constantly changing. I have a friend that told me I change my hair more than anyone he knows, <laughs> so, <laughs> which so I think it's I. one of those indicators. Yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was just remember how you talked to me about changing fashion and yeah. that in its own way as um, either an indicator or illustrator or even a metaphor for how we go through these squares of change. I love those physical indicators because there's all the stuff inside where you're, you're struggling emotionally and you're having these thoughts and it may or may not be visible to other people. And then there's those indicators of, yeah, all of a sudden none of your clothes, you don't like anything in your closet. I've talked to a ton of people recently with that. You're changing your hair or you want to change your hair. All of a sudden you have this urge to declutter your house. You're like, I just need to get rid of all this stuff. I just want everything to be white. That's what my hairstylist said the other day. Just wish everything was whitewashed and gone. And yeah, I love those physical manifestations. Anonymously, of course, but would you maybe share some illustrations of perhaps some clients that you've worked with and their journeys as a way just to illustrate some of the reasons or some, some of the experiences that people are encountering in their lives 
and the the process they've gone through with you to help achieve some sort of um, calmness and mm. happiness. Yeah. What are some good stories? Well, I had one client that came to me and she was feeling really lost. She said, I don't know if I want to keep doing this IT consulting work or I want to go work at a dog rescue. <laughs> I'm just feeling burnout and I have no idea what I want. And for her, on the outside, I think the changes don't seem that dramatic, but the way she described it at the end of our three months together was that her shoulders felt two inches lower. I just love that so much. Looking at her results, she did things like cut her hours at work. She didn't, she didn't change positions. She started back up with a creative hobby. She had this technical blog that was so good that when her employer sent her to industry events, strangers would come up to her and thank her for writing. And she hadn't written in six months. So she started writing again. She did some things at home. She planted a garden. And all of that was possible because both inner and outer work, but really a lot of that inner stuff, you know, noticing that she was putting such a strong sense of responsibility on her own shoulders, that um, there was this pattern in her life, which is really helpful for people to notice. It's like she was the overachiever from the beginning, straight A's, and decided after high school she'd take it easy, and then somehow she found herself in this really exclusive, academically competitive college situation, and then somehow she found herself in the same kind of workplace, and she was finally able to shed some of that, you know, and recreate her identity. What are some of the misconceptions about coaching? And maybe I'll, I'll offer one, which is how often do people expect that you are going to fix them ha. and tell them what to do. <laughs> so that's going to, I'm going to assume that, that that's a bullseye. So maybe speak to some of those misconceptions. I love that because it, it will even happen with my clients who understand the process and they'll ask for my advice. And then I'll calmly say, well, what do you think you should do? And then they move right on. It's like, we, it's a very easy rut to get into. Um, so, and you asked me earlier when I didn't come back to about, how is coaching different from consulting and mentoring and that kind of thing? This is where that comes in because I walk into a coaching relationship knowing that they are a whole person that knows what's best for them. They're the hero of their journey and I'm just a guide. And it goes back to the expanding awareness. I, I truly believe that the answers are within each person. There's just so much that gets in the way. I talk a lot about making space. So we make space and you can have that awareness and there are times when I will offer ideas or with entrepreneurs, I might say that I'm putting on my advisor hat, <laughs> um, but that's such a small piece of what coaching is. Um, what are other misconceptions? Just generally the same misconception that's, I don't know if misconception is the right word, but the feeling that's shared with therapy <laughs> that, um, well, if I have a problem that's, that's about my emotional health, my mental health, I should just fix it. You know, I should just be able to figure this out. Something's wrong with me if I can't figure it out. You know, it makes people uncomfortable about going to a therapist. And I, I see the same thing from time to time that they lump life coaching in the same arena. And it is, I mean, we're both helping people with parts of their lives that you can't always touch and feel. And it's, it's, I almost cuss. I don't know if I can cuss. Well, I get jazzed up about it. Like it's fun possible to get help from a therapist, a psychiatrist, a coach, all of these things. And it's absurd that we expect people to just fix themselves and be quiet about it and toughen up. So 
Yeah, that's a misconception that I run into sometimes. And I really enjoy, I work with, because I came from the tech field, I love that I get to work with a lot of engineers and, and very analytical types and bridge that gap a little bit because I think I work with a lot of cynical people that need a trusting voice to say like, no, I get it. I understand this scientific viewpoint. And trust me, it's not, it's not woo-woo. It's, it's effective. So that expression, woo-woo, um, may be intended to be uh, negatively um, asserted, but what does make for a good coach, other than everything you are, obviously? <laughs> hmm. Well, number one, I think a great coach, the phrase I use is live it to give it. A great coach prioritizes their own mental, emotional, spiritual growth. And that's part of their work life, you know, whether that's meditating three times a day, reading books, questioning their limiting beliefs, getting out into nature, doing art, incorporating a lot of rest and play into their days. All of that stuff is really important. Um, and a good coach is curious, genuinely curious and enjoys learning about people because the fascinating thing is, and this is maybe where it, you can see a sharp contrast to something like consulting where an expert is coming in and helping you solve a problem. Coaching is like this exploration where we're finding every person's map because we all have different worldviews. So it's like my job is to explore and figure out how you see the world so that we can see how that world needs to shift so that you can achieve your vision. So yeah, a, new, uh, a great coach is curious in that way. There's something about, you see this when you hang out with a lot of coaches, there's something about the way that we communicate that is empowering. And this really hit home when I was in, I still remember the very moment when I learned this, not by reading about it, but experientially learned this in life coach training. I went to a wonderful program with the Martha Beck Institute, and we often had these calls where you'd have one student is acting as the client. And not really acting, they're bringing a true problem from their life to class. One student is acting as the coach, and the teacher is there to support, and the whole class is observer, so they can chime in. I was the student, and I said something kind of sad panda, and the student who was being the coach said something like, hmm, that must have been so hard. And we carried on, and later we were doing the feedback, and I shared, you know, that when she said that, oh, that must be so hard, it shifted in my body and I suddenly felt disempowered. I suddenly felt less able to solve that problem. And that was like, oh, that was gold. 
the class was worth it just for that moment because in everyday conversation, that's what's expected, you know, and, and it makes sense when you're not, when you don't have permission to coach someone, you know, they're sharing with you that they just got diagnosed with cancer. That's a proper response in a coaching call. There's different rules of engagement. And I saw so clearly that that response was, wouldn't be serving my clients. So a great coach embodies that we were able to step into that role of coach rather than rescuer while still having empathy and being loving. They're not mutually exclusive, like I thought at one point. It seems from everything we've been talking about so far that if we are going to expect the coach to be this guide, then how clients go about selecting that journey partner is actually really quite important. It's not something you just do necessarily. You don't go to Yelp or um, you know Craigslist and just find the coach. <laughs> and even a recommendation may not be quite right because it seems to be such a deeply personal exploration and relationship. So what should a client do to make sure that when they go exploring for the coach that is going to work with them, that they're going to, at least with all good intention, find the right coach for them? Yeah. I think all of those are great ways to find candidates. I've had clients that didn't know me at all, just found me on Yelp. And the key is that they're candidates. Get on the phone with the coach and talk to a few coaches so that you have that sense of how they really are on the call. I think that's, that's wonderful. Everyone should, should talk to multiple coaches. And I, I've worked with a number of therapists in my life and, and it's not, it's not a lifelong thing. I've, seen a therapist for a few months and then switched. So the other thing is no matter where you are, just always pay attention to yourself, your body, and be willing to change and ask for what you need. On your website, you talk about busting open your handcuffs. So what was it that called you to coaching as a career and a practice? I suppose really I've long been obsessed with finding purpose in my work. Like I remember I read What Color Is Your Parachute, which if anyone's not familiar, like classic career search book, first written in the 70s, I think. And um, I was talking to a college career counselor and telling her that I read this book and she looked at me funny and I started to explain what it is. And she was like, no, I, I know what the book is. I've just never known anyone so young to read it. <laughs> so this has just, just always been in the background of my life. And the other thing in the background of my life is mild depression, which took me a long time to even realize it was there. And then a, a series of things happened in the foreground to push me forward, right? So I had a job that, for whatever reason, triggered this depression in a new way. And it was suddenly something that was keeping me in bed 
multiple days in a row. Um, and that prompted me to go to therapy and start working through things. So I had all this unresolved grief from my childhood. And once I worked through that, I discovered coaching and, and signed up for training because I wanted to heal myself. And also I thought maybe actually I would basically, as soon as I realized that life coaching was an industry, part of me knew that that's what I wanted to do. I love that talking to people about their dreams and helping them get things done and building plans and talking about thoughts and feelings. I can't believe I've created a life where I get to talk about thoughts and feelings every day. Um, so I knew that I wanted to be a coach. And then this happened in retrospect, what feels very slowly. So I, I bought a textbook, how to become a professional life coach. And it sat for a year, you know, and then I picked it up and, and talked to somebody who needed a coach. And then I got scared. And another six months later, I signed up for training. And then I finished training and I thought, okay, I should just keep working for another year or two. And then maybe I'll be a coach. So I was very resistant to the idea of doing this full time. It was very risk averse. The big moment for me was um, a year and a half ago. I had been doing really well, loved my, you know, I worked with really joyful people, um, great relationships. And all of a sudden I was depressed again. And there was even one morning where I, I cried on and off for two hours trying to just force myself to stop crying so I could go to work and go to this important meeting. So I was leading a department at the time. And it finally occurred to me that what had triggered this was my birthday. So I had turned 34 and my mom died when she was 35. So I always had in mind that 35 was going to be a tough year for me. It's a thing for women who've lost their moms. The idea that we're not going to outlive our mothers. So it surprised me at 34, but it was just this sense that it's like, Mandy, you know exactly what you want to do. What the hell are you doing? This could be your last year on earth. And you could quit your job. You totally could quit your job and do this. And it was like, as soon as I had that realization, I felt total peace. The sadness was gone. So yeah, I gave my notice a couple days later. My husband was out of town. So I remember texting him like, do you think I could quit my job? <laughs> He's like, let's talk later. <laughs> Don't let What were those limiting beliefs that held you back for what, doing the math in my head, sounds like a couple of years? Yeah, lots of them. So some of the ones that stand out are this idea that I need to make people comfortable, you know, that I signed up for this. You know, they expect me to go to work and keep doing this job. Just the pure fear. Maybe I can't be an entrepreneur. 
maybe I'm not very smart. Maybe I'm not a good coach. Um, yeah, but I think somehow there was always that spark in me that knew before that I, before I was ever willing to share it with the world. I remember this time years ago, you know, the concept, the word fishing, like fishing for compliments, like, hmm, this makes me look fat, doesn't it? Oh no, honey, you look wonderful. So I had this kind of conversation with a really good friend of mine, but it was, do you think I'd make a better entrepreneur or my husband? <laughs> and he's like, I've never really pictured you as an entrepreneur, but Bob, yeah, he could, I could totally see him starting a company. So I was internally pissed, but didn't say at that time, I, I didn't tell anyone that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, that I wanted to have my business. But I was aware that I was holding back so much that I was creating this, this view that I was somebody that, that was really risk averse, because in many ways I was. So we're talking about risk and we've talked about entrepreneurship. And the fact is that coaches typically are self-employed business owners. So talk a little bit more about the aspect of what you do or the aspects of what you do that are around being an entrepreneurial business person. I kind of think of my work very generally as taking up three buckets. There's that self-improvement work that I talked about before. There's truly coaching and serving clients, kind of my zone of genius. And then the third one is marketing, marketing and sales and operations and all the stuff you're alluding to. So yeah, it's a fun mix. And I think the biggest thing that has helped me excel in that third area is hiring a business coach, honestly. It seems so obvious in hindsight, but it took me a little while to make that leap. And there's just so much. Someone said to me recently, the subject was, why aren't more life coaches earning six figures? There's so many of us that do this on the side and just consider it a hobby or, or whatever, even though our heart says we really want to be coaching more. And he said that, we need to shift from being dabblers and pioneers to being masters and modelers. And modelers is the one that really stands out to me because when I started, I felt like I had to pioneer and create everything from scratch. And I have no background. I mean, I've done a lot of things. You know, I have an MBA. I've been a software engineer, a project manager, all these things. But I don't know sales and marketing. It's like I wasn't even aware that there were all of these tools and frameworks out there and that I could, I could use. Yeah, that's been a big thing, a big part of my growth process is learning how to, how to market authentically and to sell, to reframe sales as a service because that's what it is. It's not this ego thing. And I'm sure people that have always been in sales, it's second nature to them. It was just one of those pieces that I didn't realize was a gap. And that's, that's the entrepreneur experience to me. It's like, you have to do everything and just figuring out piece by piece where to focus your energy and improve. Well, you don't have to do everything, but you own everything. What are the, some of the beliefs you hold about yourself? And what are some of the, maybe the fresh ways in which you or even others around you see you now that you are a coach running your own coaching business and have been doing this for 18, 24 months. Mm -hmm. So how are you different as a person? I don't think I'm, I'm different as a person. Um, I'm just able to do a lot more things. Yeah. I feel like I am the same person. People react to me and 
say, you know, interact with me in the same ways that they have. But sometimes it will hit me like, oh, wow, this, you know, I just had a conversation with a stranger in a coffee shop and it wasn't even uncomfortable. That would have been hell a year ago, you know, and I gave a workshop to 30 people last week in Lincoln and it was fun and energizing. And I had talked to large groups of people before, but not something that was like my baby, my creation, my ideas that I was, I was running them through. Um, and they were so engaged in all of the interactions. That was really fun. And that was another moment where it's like, wow, I have learned so much over this time. And yet I'm the same presence that I was, you know, three years ago when I was presenting in front of a company of 150 people on living our values as professionals. I think that's true. I haven't thought about it. You got it. You know, I often ask people on this show to tell me a little about their background and about their upbringing. I'm always interested in perhaps some of their their formative years and how growing up has shaped perhaps their worldview. And I don't know, I kind of want to ask you to talk about how was your childhood and who were you as a child, but I don't know if that's something you want to talk about. That's exactly what I want to talk about. I want to talk about my life. Okay. (laughs) Mandy, tell me about your life. Like, Add some context, like where you were born, what your childhood was like, how you've evolved to, to here. Yeah, so I like that. I have a friend that, that starts out one-on-one conversations with her executive clients with what are two or three events that have formed your life? So the biggest event is something that happened when I was very young and for a long time it kind of defined me. Everything was based on that event. And then I went through a period where I thought my story doesn't define me and, and, you know, that's just a thing that happened. And now I'm leaning back into, well, that actually was really important and shaped who I am. And that was losing my mom when I was seven years old. So just very unexpectedly, it was Christmas Eve morning in second grade. I was awoken by my Aunt Patty very confused. She was telling me that mom had a headache, so she was at the hospital. And I remember thinking, that doesn't add up. Um, And yeah, that was a big experience. And probably is why I'm writing a memoir now. Starts with that. It's really how that experience shaped me. 
yeah, picture being seven years old, going into this hospital, going into a hospital room, not understanding what's happening. And your mom is flailing around the bed, moaning. There's a team of nurses around her trying to hold her legs and arms down and noise is happening and people shouting out numbers. And the nurse is so sweet. And she's saying, Luann, Luann, your kids are here. Luann, Mandy and Aaron, you know, Mandy and Aaron. And she's just fighting physically. Um, and the nurse kind of apologizes and shuffles us out. Whoa, what was that? And then the next time I see my mom, it's like polar opposite. And the way I understand it is the doctors had sat her down and told her, you know, Luann, oh, I didn't even say why she was there. She had a brain aneurysm. So they explained, you know, Luann, you have a brain aneurysm. And if you want any chance of surviving, you can't move. You need to be perfectly still. So my dad had prepared me. He said, you know, mom's going to be looking away from the door towards the window because that's the nicer view. And so when we get to a room, we need to be really quiet and move as quickly as we can to the other side of the bed with the implication being if she turns her head, she might die. So I remember being so afraid, you know, my little seven-year-old loud, boisterous self being as quiet as I can, going to the other side of the bed. I was afraid, you know, I wanted to touch her, but I didn't want to touch her. And I was afraid the needles would stab me and then I would get whatever sickness she had and then I would be in the hospital. And I think now about how there were so many things running through my head that I didn't communicate and no adult would have any idea the confusion that was happening. So now I'm really conscious with younger people when we're in a situation like that, when someone's sick, of taking the time to explain factually, you know, I know he just said that. I want to make sure you understand that that was an exaggeration and this is what he meant. Um, yeah, and I didn't visit her at the very end, but she, um, I've since learned from my family what those last moments were like. And my Aunt Patty, one of my aunts, told me about how, because um, there were surgeries, but things didn't quite work. And then she had a stroke and she was brain dead. So the family all gathered to to say goodbye and she described how i hope my dad doesn't listen to this podcast <laughs> this is too much but she she explained how my dad cried and it was the first time she'd seen him cry he cried a little and then he went to the sink and dried his face with paper towels and walked out of the room and that image just image just so gets me because like i can't imagine now, as somebody married and at that age, 35, I can't imagine what it would be like to lose Bob and also to be a man in this culture of needing to be strong and, and support everyone and fix everything. I'm going to tell one more story. It was Christmas time, right? So probably something like early January, we opened our presents. I don't know. And somebody had the idea that I should take in a present and it might spark mom's memory. Because mom was very, the way dad describes it, it was very kind of all over the place. Sometimes she was saying things where it was clear that she thought that she was 19 and they had just gotten married. Usually she didn't, she wasn't aware of having kids, but sometimes she was really sharp. And my dad says like, he tells a story about how he was just sitting with her talking about how he was going to go buy mac and cheese for the kids. And she's like, don't you dare go buy mac and cheese. There are like 20 boxes above the mac microwave of Kraft mac and cheese. He's like, oh man, who knows? She's, she's lost it again. And he comes home and opens up the cabinet. And indeed, he had no idea, but there were 20 things of mac and cheese above the microwave. 
So you never knew. So the idea was, you know, take a Christmas gift in and, and maybe it'll spark mom's memory. So I took in this crimp and curl cabbage patch doll that she bought me. Um, and, you know, she said, oh, that's such a nice doll. Who bought it for you? And I said, you did. Oh, hmm. And like, that's a, that's a moment that I remember so well because it, the general feeling I had for those two weeks is that it wasn't mom, you know? It was, but it, there was part of my little self that knew that mom as I knew her wasn't there. What else should I talk about? I could tell you about um, my proudest moment. That's also kind of sad panda, but. So, yeah. Tell me about a proud moment. My proudest moment, beyond a doubt, is when I visited my brother. So my brother and I were super close. I even wrote a short story in elementary school about my mom's death that was called Just the Two of Us, but it was about my brother and I. So he became my absolute best friend, especially after going through such a huge loss, you know? Um, and various things happened. He struggled with addiction. He ended up moving to Delaware, just kind of escaped our family, very infrequently stayed in communication. I might talk to him on the phone once every couple of years. And at some point, a therapist planted the seed, like, why don't you just go visit your brother? You have the means. And again, that was a time when it took probably six months or a year for me to move on it. But I remember sending him a Facebook message back when Messenger was integrated into Facebook and not this crazy separate app and being a little nervous that he wouldn't want to see me, but he was elated. And so my then fiance, now husband, and I flew out to Baltimore and drove to Seaford, Delaware to see him and meet his new family. And it had been 11 years since I had seen my brother. And I... My favorite memory is standing in the driveway and hugging him for the first time. He had these big orange sunglasses on so that we couldn't see him crying, but we're both just bawling. And I remember thinking, God, he's so much shorter than I thought. Because <laughs> I had been, you know, I don't know, 14 when I had seen him last. So yeah, that's my proudest moment. It feels like there has been so much, obviously so many experiences and our lives are this massive compilation of experiences. But it also feels as if a lot of this, and, and so much more, of course, that, that we don't have time to talk about, is cathartic. And it feels as if this, this is a poor segue, but it connects in some way to this idea of being a coach, a guide, someone that can help others mm. 
uncover this pathway to clarity for themselves. I want to end by asking a tandem, a twinned, a bifurcated question about what advice now, with everything you know and have experienced now, would you offer to your younger self? And what advice would you offer generally to listeners to the show? I do think it's very healing to go through the process of telling your story and writing your story. There's something about communication that makes everything fit together. When I started writing my memoir, I remember so many people would say, that must be so healing for you. That must be so, you know, what a great experience for you. And I was like, no, I'm writing a story to sell. (laughs) But in time I found, oh, yes, yes. When that first editor reviewed my draft and, and said, everyone seems very evil or angelic and you don't seem very, you know, I was very much a victim in my first draft of my memoir, as in life. So yeah, I think that idea of speaking through our experiences is powerful for everyone to do, whether that's with a friend, with a coach, writing, whatever that is for you. I think for some people, it's even kind of physical, um, getting out and moving your body. Advice in general, there's so much I would tell my younger self. I think the biggest one that applies to everyone is the simple quote, don't believe everything you think. It took me many years to separate myself from my thinking mind and start to see the lies that I tell myself are all delusional. And just noticing is such a powerful first step. My second piece of advice is to breathe. Have you ever gotten stressed out and just taken one or three deep breaths? It's legit. Take a time, take a time, take a time. No need to hurry. Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy. No need to hurry. My guest today has been life and business coach, Mandy Kubicek. Thank you, Mandy, so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. If you fall from the race, it's no disgrace. Just pick yourself from off the ground. Take a time, take a time, take a time. No need to hurry. No, no, no. Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy. Can I give a 40-minute answer? You can, and I'll (laughs) edit it down to 60 seconds. No, I'm kidding. I'm just joking. You can take as much space as you need. (laughs) (laughs) Where am I going with this? I'm going to tell one more story. You can cut if you want. I'm enjoying this. That's the end of this week's show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.